I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 for our reading of Scripture this morning. This is a beautiful passage that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ and the writer of Hebrews just piles up one Old Testament quote after another showing that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is God and worthy of all glory and praise. Let us hear the word of God. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, And let all God's angels worship him. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his servants a fiery flame. But to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has appointed, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak, and they will be changed like clothing. But you are the same, and your years will never end. Now to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? I invite you now to turn to the Old Testament, to Psalm 2, for our message passage, our scripture passage for the message this morning. Psalm 2. Let us hear the word of God. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand, 
and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one, saying, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his holy word. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, how we praise you for your wonderful mercies to us. Your wonderful mercies to the sinners that we are. Lost and corrupt and under condemnation, yet you in your mercy gave of your Son to take our place, to suffer for our sins, to bring us to newness of life in Christ. Heavenly Father, you have revealed that your Son is truly glorious, for he is eternal God, and yet he took on human flesh. He was made like us, that he might take our place and be our Savior. But he is resurrected from the dead. He is ascended unto heaven. He is coronated and enthroned on high and rules over all. And he does so for his people, his church, of which we count ourselves to be your people through faith in Christ. And we give praise and glory to your name. Fill our hearts, we pray, with an awareness of the glory of our Savior and King and his glorious rule over all. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The world that we live in is broken. The evidence of this is all around us. Greed, lying, theft, hatred, violence, murder, rape, abuse, arrogance, disrespect, rebellion against authorities, Rebellion against God. This brokenness entered the world through the sin and rebellion of Adam. It has spread to 
all the hearts of those who are born into this world. God has declared that he will rescue all who turn to him from this unrighteousness that fills our hearts. And he will fill us with his righteousness. He has a plan to redeem and to rule and to restore the entire world. To recreate the heavens and the earth. And remake them into a place where righteousness dwells. He has a redeemer to bring this about. Psalm 2 tells us about God's king who will restore the world. But many of the people in this world have a different plan for the world. And to them, God is not the solution, but the problem. To them, the solution is to throw off all thought of submission to God and his law and to free themselves to do whatever their hearts desire. They view the way of the righteous as bondage and the way of the wicked as freedom. In Psalm 2, the first three verses describe the rebellion of the nations. These verses say, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one, saying... Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. Notice here the similarities of this with Psalm 1. Psalm 2.2 says the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. The Hebrew word for conspire is a form of the Hebrew verb hagah. It is the same word used in Psalm 1 verse 2, which there is translated as meditate. It literally means to mutter, to mutter, to mutter. It it refers to the righteous quietly muttering or repeating God's word, going around, walking around, repeating God's word quietly as they study it and as they meditate on it. But the wicked, the wicked are also muttering under their breath, but they're not repeating God's word. They're muttering plots. And rebellion against the Lord. And again, Psalm 2.2 says, The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed one. But Psalm 1.5 has already assured us the wicked will not stand up in the judgment. Their rebellion against God is doomed to failure. The word Lord here refers to Yahweh. The God who delights to enter into a covenant bond of love with all those who trust in him. And the phrase, his anointed one, refers to the one that God has caused to be anointed with oil on his head to install him as the king over God's people. The Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. And the Greek word for anointed one is Christ. Both Messiah and Christ refer to God's king over his people. Acts 4.25 tells us that this psalm, Psalm 2, was written by King David, whom God installed as his anointed one over his people. 
But take note that God has also extended the rule of his king over the nations around Israel. You see, the Bible is one complete story from beginning to end. You might not think so because there are 66 different books in it, but it's really one story from beginning to end. It is much like a detective mystery. I don't, I don't know how many of you like watching detective mysteries, murder mysteries, or, or reading books about them. Recently, my wife has gotten me into some murder mystery series. And it has been really fun. And I like to try and figure out what's going on before we get to the end. I try to put all the clues together and, and avoid the, the, the misleading things and figure that out. And the Bible is like that, but you have to read the whole thing to have all the clues and to have all the information and to put it together and see what it's telling you. And you see, if, if you don't read the whole Bible, then the Bible becomes much like a jigsaw puzzle. And uh, recently I got my wife into doing jigsaw puzzles with me. And we keep doing ones that are a little larger, 550, and now we're on a 700-piece puzzle. And it's neat. You put all these little pieces in. But you know what? If you don't have all the pieces, you can't tell what it is. And sometimes you're looking at pieces and you say, where does that go? And it's like, I have no idea what that's a picture of. Until you get all the pieces and you assemble them and then you see the picture and then you understand what it is. And you see, if you don't read the whole Bible, you're trying to understand it. You're trying to understand one passage, but you don't get the picture because you don't have all the pieces of the puzzle. And the pieces of the puzzle are, so to speak, spread throughout the whole entire Bible. Psalm 2 looks ahead far beyond the reign of David. Psalm 2 fits into all that the Bible is saying. And we have to look at many passages in the Bible to see this picture that is being presented here and fully understand it. And verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 2 include a promise from God that he will give the rule over all the peoples of the earth to his anointed one. And God's promise that his anointed one will rule over the entire world is found in many passages of the scripture. We read Psalm 110 this morning, and also Psalm 72 celebrates the coming king of Israel who will rule over all the nations of the world. And in Acts chapter 4, after the Jewish Sanhedrin had the apostles of the Christian church stand before them and they threatened them and they warned them, do not preach in this name of Jesus Christ. Do not preach or teach anything about Jesus. The Christian church then went and gathered for worship. Could they obey the Sanhedrin? They could not. They were called to declare the glorious news that Jesus Christ is King over all and Savior of all who come to him. 
And as they were worshiping together, one of the teachers in the church quoted Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, and declared that these verses were fulfilled when the Israelites and when King Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles conspired together against Jesus and plotted to put him to death. But all their efforts to overthrow God's king were in vain because God resurrected Jesus from the dead and Jesus ascended to heaven and he was enthroned as God's king of the world. And he sovereignly reigns over all people and all events in this world for the good of his people. And then, right then and there, Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit upon his people and he filled his people with the boldness to go out and spread his glorious name and glorious kingdom to the ends of the earth. Those who rebel against God will not accomplish anything against the great king of the world. Secondly, let us look at verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 2, which describe the response of the ruler of the universe. Verses 4 through 6 say this, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. God tells us that he is sitting in heaven. He is enthroned in heaven. He is ruling from heaven over all. The word Lord in verse 4 is not Yahweh, but Adonai. It means that God is the sovereign Lord, that he is the master over all, that he is the ruler of the entire universe. God responds to the ungrateful rebellion against him and against his anointed king by laughing, laughing at them. Does he consider them a serious threat? No, he laughs at them. Notice again the similarities and contrast with Psalm 1. Psalm 1, one says that the wicked sit in the company of mockers. They sit and mock God's people and they mock our God. But Psalm 2.4 says the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. God sits in heaven and laughs at them. God is mocking them. When you find yourself being ridiculed, for speaking up for righteousness and for speaking up for the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ, what should you do? You should lift your eyes to heaven and understand that the one who rules over all things is laughing at the foolishness of those who mock righteousness. Do not fear them and do not be angry with them know that they will have to answer to God for their actions. It is better for us to pity them and to pray for them. It is this thought that helps me, that calms 
my anger and gives me compassion for those that frustrate me. It is this thought that helps me not to argue with or insult those who argue with me and insult me. It is this thought that helps me to listen to them so that I may better understand them before beginning to speak to them in an effort to help them change their thinking. We don't have to be discomforted by those who are angry and insulting and wicked. We can give that to God and we can ask for God's wisdom to help us say a word that will help them. Verse 5 tells us that not only does God mock the wicked, but God also speaks to them and takes action against them in their lives to unsettle them and terrify them. Better that they learn to fear God now while there is yet time for them to repent. Verse 6 tells us that God's plan for the restoration of the world is this, to install his king, to install his king of the earth on Zion. The mountains of Jerusalem. To rule over his people and to rule over the entire world. Now, some people may laugh at the weakness of the kingdoms of David and Solomon. People may even laugh at the idea that Jesus Christ is now reigning over the whole earth. But God assures us that it is so. And Philippians 2, 10 through 11 assures us that the reign of Jesus Christ will climax with every ruler and every person bowing down before the face of Jesus Christ and confessing that he is indeed the Lord and ruler over all. We should remember that God established Israel as his people. And God established the laws of Israel, and the laws of Israel allowed for people of other nations to come and become part of God's people and to experience the blessings of God. The book of 1 Samuel tells us that God gave Samuel to his people to be their prophet, to reveal to them what God is like and how to have a relationship with God. And God also got, gave Samuel to them to be their priest, to show them how to worship God and how to walk in fellowship with God. But 1 Samuel 8 tells us that the people of Israel were not satisfied with Samuel. And they demanded a king who would go out before them and lead them to fight their battles and to provide for them like the heathen nations had. They wanted a king like they, they wanted to be like the heathen nations. In saying this, they were rejecting God as their king. God points out, 
I am your king. You're rejecting me. I am your king. You have a king. God was their king and protector and far better than any earthly king. They wanted to trust a mere man to be a better king and provider for them than God. But God told Samuel that he was going to allow them to have a king. And God did this for two reasons. And the first was so that the people could learn that even the very best of human beings and human kings are corrupt. And their hearts are not pure. And they learned that lesson in Saul. And secondly, to place over the world, God would use this. God would use their sinful desire for a king to open up the way for God to place a human king over the entire world who would be a divine human king to redeem people from their corruption and to eternally and personally care for the people of the earth. The kingship of Saul demonstrated the first that even the most promising and capable human being is born in sin and corruption and is unable to rescue people from sin or provide the protection and care that they need. Conversely, God works a transforming work of grace in David and through David, God provides a picture of the coming divine human king that God would use to redeem and rule and restore the hearts and lives of the people of the world. In 1 Samuel 13 and verse 14, God says this about David. He says, the Lord has found a man after his own heart. God says, here's a man who has a heart like I do, a heart for righteousness and not for wickedness. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. And 2 Samuel 8, 15 says, So David reigned over all Israel, administering justice and righteousness for all his people. Oh, that we had rulers like that in America today that administered justice and righteousness in all that they did. You see, through David, Israel became not only the people of God, but Israel became the kingdom of God on earth. And 2 Samuel 10 also shows us the goodness of King David toward all the surrounding nations, even the heathen nations that surrounded Israel. David sent emissaries to Hanun, the son of Nahash, the king of Ammon, to console him in the loss of his father. But Hanun acted foolishly, and he treated these emissaries with great contempt. And then when Hanun finally realized how offensive his actions were and what he did, then he compounded his foolishness and made it even worse, because then he fears that David will come against him. So Hanun goes out, and hires 33,000 soldiers to join his army and to fight against Israel. I mention all this to show that David's relations with the surrounding nations were just and righteous. He was not the aggressor in the wars 
that came to Israel. But when the nations surrounding Israel fought against Israel, God enabled David to defeat every one of them and subject every one of them to his rule. And every one of them brought tribute to David. 2 Samuel 8, verse 6, and verses 11 through 12 say this, The Arameans became David's subjects and brought tribute. The Lord made David victorious wherever he went. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold he had dedicated from all the nations he had subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Amalekites, and the spoil of Hadad-Dezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Uh, that passage mentions every nation that surrounded the entire nation of Israel. Every one of them became subject to David and gave tribute to David. In all of this, King David is a forerunner of Jesus Christ. The divine king who cares for his people as a shepherd cares for lambs. But we do need to note that the kingdom of Jesus Christ does not spread in the same way. It does not spread through the world by military conquest. Rather, it spreads by missionary proclamation. The book of Acts shows the missionaries going out and taking the news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ to the nations surrounding Israel, and then to lands even farther away. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 26, teaches us, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us, subduing our hearts, not merely our lives, our persons and our possessions, but our hearts subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And we who have been conquered by the loving grace of Jesus, we rightly owe tribute to him. We rightly owe all our love and all our worship and all our service to our Lord and Savior. Yet despite the kindness of King David to those over which he ruled, and despite the incredible blessings that come from being under the rule and care of King Jesus, there are many who take their stand and conspire against God's anointed king. But as we have seen, they are no threat to God's king. And their rebellion shall accomplish nothing against Jesus. And thirdly, let us look at verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 2, which describe the reign of the Lord's anointed. Verses 7 through 9 say this, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like poverty, like pottery. The psalm writer David speaks 
<coughs> and recounts God's decree, <coughs> excuse me, which is God's oath, God's promise, God's covenant with him. These words may be understood as the words of David and also understood as the words of Jesus Christ. David recalls the words of 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 16, which say, The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house to you. God is telling David, I will build a house for you. Not a house of people, or not a house of bricks and stones and blocks, but a house of people. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. God promised to establish the descendants of David as the kings of God's people forever. Yet we know that Ever since A.D. 70, the Israelite people have not even known their genealogy to know who is even qualified to be their king. And ever since 586 B.C., the Jewish people have had no earthly king, it seems, to rule over them. How is this fulfilled? It is fulfilled in that they have an eternal king in Jesus to rule over the people of God, a descendant of David to rule eternally over the people of God and over all the nations of the earth. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. God, here in these words, I will be his father, and he will be my son, was promising to adopt each king, each descendant of David, as his own son on the day of his enthronement, and as his son to love him and to care for him and to bless him in his rule over God's people. And his care for God's people. And this is significant for when Jesus claims to be the son of God, he is not only claiming to be God, to be divine. He is also claiming to be the son of David, the rightful king of God's people and the Messiah who would rule over the entire world. The sonship of Jesus was somewhat different than that of David and his descendants because Jesus was always, always the Son of God from eternity past. There was never a time when Jesus was not the Son of God. 
the descendants of David, became the son of God in the sense here that they were adopted as his son and cared for on the day of their coronation and enthronement. Jesus was always the son of God. But the coronation and enthronement of Jesus Christ as God's king did take place in history. God tells us in Acts 2, 32 through 35, that the resurrected Jesus, that God resurrected Jesus from the dead, raised him up to heaven, and there enthroned him at his right hand to rule over all the earth. And therefore, Revelation 1.5 declares that Jesus is, right now is, and ever since then is, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Psalm 2.8 assures us that God will cause people from all the nations of the world to come to Jesus, to be the people of Jesus. And Jesus as God's anointed king, will inherit and pass on to his people the new heavens and the new earth, all of earth as their eternal possession. Verse 9 tells us that all rebellion against God's king will fail. Those who reject Christ's rule will be like pottery that will be broken and shattered into many pieces. Revelation 19 and verses 15 through 16 apply these verses to Jesus when it says that Jesus will return as King of kings and Lord of lords and will rule them with an iron rod. This is indicating that Jesus will judge and remove all the wicked from the world at his return. But there is another way for people to follow. It is the way of the righteous. And verses 10 through 12 now invite the nations and the people of the world to follow this path instead of following the way of the wicked. Verses 10 through 12 invite all to come to the refuge to be found in the anointed one. Verses 10 through 12 say, So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. God's prophet David now invites all the rulers and nations and peoples of the world to trust in Yahweh, to submit to Yahweh, and to submit to his king, Jesus Christ, to serve him with reverential awe. The rest of the Old Testament also speaks of a voluntary submission to the Lord. Returning to Jeremiah's sermon on Psalms 1 and 2, we see that he declares in Jeremiah 16, 19, Lord, you are my strength and my stronghold my refuge in a time of distress. The nations will come to you from the ends of the earth and they will say, Our fathers inherited only lies, worthless idols of no benefit at all. And Jesus, as Yahweh, gives his invitation to all of us. 
He says to you in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke. What is a yoke? It's that thing you put on oxen to yoke them together and make them work together. And you know what? It keeps them from going this way or that way. And, and it's heavy and it controls them. But what does Jesus say about his yoke, his guiding of us, his caring for us? He says, my, take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest, not labor and burden. But in my guidance and care, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Not the way those in rebellion against Christ view it. Psalm 2 says they, they view Christ's rule as chains upon them as cords, as ropes binding them. But those who come to Christ find His law is not bondage, but freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from misery, freedom from condemnation. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Verse 11 describes genuine worship in three short words. Rejoice, with trembling. Can you hold these two very paradoxical concepts together without letting go of either one? Can you rejoice that Christ has offered you eternal life and love and blessing? And can you still be mindful that the Savior and God you worship is all-powerful, all-holy, all-just, and the one who must punish all sin and wickedness? All sin and wickedness will receive its just and final punishment. The sins of the wicked, those who do not submit to Christ, those sins and the judgment for it will be borne eternally by the wicked themselves. But the sins of those who trust in Christ have already been borne. They have already been infinitely paid for by Jesus Christ and have been taken away as far as the east is from the west. Can you worship your Savior and God with an overwhelming joy that causes your heart to soar and your lips to loudly proclaim Him for His mercy and grace to you while at the same time trembling, trembling at the thought that you stand in the presence of of the all-holy God. Verse 12 begins, pay homage to the Son, which literally says, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Show your respect and submission to Him and show your love for Him. The word for Son here is unusual because it's not a Hebrew word. It's an Aramaic word stuck in a Hebrew text. Aramaic was the common language of all the nations north of Israel. It included those that fought against King David in 2 Samuel 10. This makes it clear that God is inviting all the nations to come to the one who is his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. All those who were at war 
with the kingdom of God in David's day, all those who are at war with Jesus Christ today, there's an invitation to come, come to the Son and receive him. And to offer to him the due reverence that is, that to offer the reverence that is due to the one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. The phrase, you will perish in your rebellion, is another point of contact with Psalm 1, which ends with the statement, the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2.12 literally says, you will perish in the way. The way refers to the way of the wicked. To all those who do not give the worship and obedience to Jesus that is due him, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, this statement means you will perish in your way, the way of the wicked which you have chosen when Jesus returns to judge the wicked and to receive his people to dwell with him forever. Let us look now at the final phrase of Psalm 2. All who take refuge in him are happy. Psalm 1 begins with a sweet promise of God's blessing. How happy is the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked. And Psalm 2 concludes with a sweet promise of God's blessing. Here is God's wonderful invitation. All who take refuge in him, in the Son of God, in the anointed King are happy, are blessed by God. It has well been said, there is no refuge to be found outside of Christ, but only in Him. God's wonderful blessings come on those who take refuge in Him, who serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Let us pray. Eternal God and Father, we pray that you would be pleased to cause the kingdom of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to more and more come in fullness and power in our world. We pray that you and your son will frustrate the desires of those who oppose what is righteous and that you will increase and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ in our nation and throughout the world. We give thanks that your spirit has drawn people to Christ and, and to your church and to your kingdom from every nation on earth. We pray for the growth of your church in every land, and especially in those lands that actively persecute your people. We pray that you will give your people boldness to proclaim Christ's glory in all lands, that you will discredit the lies of those who fight against you and your people, and that you will draw the peoples joyfully to Christ. We pray that you will protect your people from the hostility of governments, who oppose your name. And where your people suffer persecution, we pray that you will make 
their testimony so faithful and so powerful and so effective that the persecution of your people will yield thousands upon thousands of souls for your kingdom. We also pray for the Jewish people that you would be pleased to fold them into the church, the body of Jesus Christ in great number. Grant to each of us hearts that passionately love our Savior and that worship him in, in reverent awe as our King and Lord. Grant to us, we pray, passion, compassionate hearts, love for the lost, and a boldness to live for Christ and to speak of Christ to others. May they see Christ in us, and may you be pleased to glorify your name through us. All these things we pray in the glorious name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That name, which is Yahweh. Amen.